Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Bodang damang sankang namasami. Pupani hewa pachinantang baya sata manasang narang sutang gamang manogowa machu adaya Gachati. So that that last verse, or that little verse, was from the Dhammapada, and uh, the translation that we are given in the books is as follows: something like this: uh, the man who gathers flowers, whose mind is distracted, death carries off. Uh, as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village. Or just to make this gender neutral, uh, the woman who gathers flowers, whose mind is distracted, death carries off as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village. I'll come back to that. So I was uh, on my way towards the sala uh, just before the meal today and one of the lay guests uh, and I got talking and he, he seemed to be prescient, he seemed to realize or, or know that I was going to be giving a talk uh, tonight, which I didn't know. And so he suggested that uh, I talk about the general election. So then I caught of started to explain, well, of course, as a monk, you don't get involved in politics, you don't start commenting on current affairs and so on, and certainly not in public. And um, so he replied, well, you know, that, that, that's not right, and the Buddha himself got involved in politics. <laughs> and so monks should. And he, he, he suggested there are books like, uh, some, there's some title like, uh, Why Democracy Needs Dhamma. That's one of these titles. So I just sort of offer uh, briefly uh, why it is we don't try to, or we try not to get involved in politics, uh, at least in this Sangha. Um, I don't think the Buddha himself did get involved in politics. Yes, he knew kings like King Bimbisara, King Pasenadi of Kosala. King Ajatasatu, he knew, or the ministers would come and see him, he would talk to very prominent people, people in positions of power, but he didn't try to get involved in politics. The only exception to that might have been when there was a question of somebody was proposing to go to war. Uh, for example, when two, two clans were about to fight over the water resources of the Rohini River, and the Buddha did come to that place and he uh, intervened in a sense of 
by his presence, requiring them not, not to do anything violent. So he was very clear about non-violence and about harmlessness. And <clears throat> there was an, one other incident where somebody was sent to inquire of him, uh, what if such and such attacks somebody, would there be any, any success? And he, was, he didn't answer it directly, but he was very skillful in the way he pointed towards non-violence. So in that way, he could, I suppose, be said to have intervened in politics, but in a very minimal way. And one of the sayings he came out with was, uh, I am in contention with no one, I am a friend to all. So if we take that to mean what it says, then if you have any kind of um, controversy or division in society, people not agreeing with, with each other, but we would presume that people on both sides of that controversy are people of goodwill and they are sincere. And so, you know, for a monk to get involved, to try to take sides would be a, a, a big mistake. Ajahn Amaro made it very clear, everyone is welcome in this monastery. So it's a great privilege to have the opportunity to sit up here and to talk to you tonight. It is the full moon night of December. Um, we're heading towards, about 10 days away now, we have the winter solstice. And that means uh, shorter and shorter days, longer and longer nights. So we'll come to the, if you like, the, the, the nadir of the year, when the day is at its shortest and the night is at its longest, and then things start to change. And then, of course, we're also heading for New Year. And New Year is a very, well, quite a busy time here. We have a major celebration on the night of, uh, of New Year's Eve. And then on the New Year Day itself, many, many people usually come into the monastery and they w want to um, get a blessing, maybe collect a calendar or some other kind of uh, literature. And then following on New Year, uh, there is the beginning of the winter retreat from the 3rd of January. So I just wanted to say that um, um, coming back, as I did from Central Europe in, uh, in October, uh, I was struck by, by the fact, by how busy the monastery can be, this monastery. It's, it's an amazing place, what it does, and how, how many different kinds of people it serves, how many different facets it has to it. So we have the people coming in and out every day, uh, what you might call the normal visitors. We have things like the workshop on a Saturday. Um, we have the, the retreats running in the retreat center. We have the, the lay groups like Alba and the Bodhinyana group. Um, we have school groups coming and other types of group coming. We have the big events like the Katina, when um, something like almost a thousand people seem to come. Uh, and then we have the, the building projects, or there's a, a major building project going on right now in the nuns area. So <clears throat> there is also the prospect of further building projects a couple of years from now, so preparations will have to be undertaken to prepare for those. So this is, a, you know, this monastery is not a boring place, it's an active busy place. It's, a, it's no doubt it's serving the society. 
But because of this, uh, I think it's all the more essential that we have periods of stillness, peace, and uh, uh, quietude, so that people can turn inwards and uh, practice and contemplate and reflect. So that's why uh, a period like the winter retreat is, is I think, uh, absolutely essential for this community. And um, you know, I, I, I commend it to everyone as being an essential part of our monastic life. And to any of the, the lay uh, volunteers who join the uh, support team, but a very useful period. So um, it's a long time, oh, quite a few months, since I sat on this seat and, and gave a talk to people here in Amravati. So what I thought I'd do is I'd reflect on some of the experiences I've had or things that have impacted on me in the last few months and uh, see if I can draw any threads or themes of Dhamma from, from those experiences. So um, over the last few years, uh, I have been going to, I've spent spending the Vasa, the Rains Retreat in Hungary, in Central Europe, where there is a, a meditation center about an hour from Budapest. And um, I'm kind of resident monk there for three months with a caretaker. And uh, many people, or quite a few people, come and visit the center. And sometimes there are retreats. We give retreats there, and indeed in other places. So this year was a little bit different to some previous years. First of all, I had the good fortune to meet with a Hungarian monk in Budapest. He's Venerable Gambiro. He's part of our Sangha, but usually he's resident in Portugal. And he happened to be visiting his family for you know for three weeks, I think. So he came into Budapest especially, and it was the day that I arrived there. We were able to meet up, and my main collaborator, Paul Farkash, took us out for a meal, and we were able to have a very good chat. And it was very nice to meet him, sort of like in his home territory, because I haven't uh, spent so much time with Venerable Gambiro. So that was one thing. So the center continues to, I suppose, to develop in a, in a kind of slow way. It's, it's a very active center. Many things happen there, like yoga, um, school groups, or s meetings of school teachers occur there. Uh, children and young people come and use the center. It's put to many different purposes. Um, and during the time that the monk is there in the Vasa, People come and they stay for a few nights or maybe one night. They'll cook a meal. Maybe we'll have a chat over a cup of tea. Maybe they'll, usually there's a puja. And, and um, this is kind of developing. So more people are coming. This is a very positive sign. And then there are the retreats held there. So as I say, about this, this vasa, about five re different retreats were held, two or three in, in this center. And a couple more in other places. Now one thing was that the, every few years or every couple of years the caretaker changes. So they, they arrange for a caretaker, a male caretaker to be there, obviously. And uh, the caretaker this year was somebody new I hadn't met before. His name is Imre. And uh, he's a, an associate 
of this man, Paul, who's the main collaborator. And Paul met him in prison. In fact, Paul's visits to prison were a major uh, inspiration to Imre. Imre was in prison for about 15 years for armed robbery. So he has robbed banks. Um, but he proved to be a very kind and helpful and supportive caretaker. He was always most assiduous to try and make sure I, I had what I needed. And so a very unusual man, but I would say quite a big heart because uh, he's particularly good at relating to animals. He seems to understand animals. You can see them kind of responding to him just when he steps nearby, when he passes by. So there was a, a problem last year with this huge dog from next door called Boris. But Imre's presence there has made a huge difference. He was able to make friends with the elderly couple who owned the dog, to build a pen for the dog. And finally, he, he, he takes the dog for a walk every morning for about eight kilometers, which makes a huge difference for this dog. Uh, gives it a bit of um, enjoyment in its life. So that's very constructive. And what he's used to doing, what he, what he liked was spending the winter in this center with the dog, with the two cats, with various things happening like wild boar coming in and various things like that. This is where he felt comfortable. And what he wasn't quite so comfortable with was a lot of people coming to the center. Because he's quite a sensitive person. And so there was one woman in particular who was, he said, was rude to her, him and it hurt him and so on. And he, he then hid away from this lady for as much as he could in his own room and so on. Um, but it was, a, I'd say, a, a very constructive partnership. We were able to work together and I was very grateful for his support. So you might ask, well, how is it that someone like this could have turned to armed robbery? And there is always a reason or an explanation behind some of these stories. So I just mentioned it, what happened with Imre. So Imre came from a large family. He had about four or five brothers and sisters. But the parents died when these people were quite young. And he was the oldest. Now, not only that, at the age of 12 or 13, he had become a boxing champion in Hungary. And he was so successful that he was sent to, to Moscow to represent Hungary in the Boxing Olympics. Uh, I don't think he won them. He became, I think he was fourth. But you must, if you can imagine this, that at the age of 12 or 13, he was introduced to this fighting mentality and that might is right and so on. So anyway, as the eldest of these children left without parents, he felt he had to provide for his brothers and sisters. He obviously fell into the wrong kind of company. He was used with this boxing background to uh, getting your own way in a certain way. So he fell into these habits and took to armed robbery. And one thing he said to me was this, he said, uh, robbing banks in Spain is a lot easier than robbing them in Hungary. Because in Spain, when you produce the gun, they all hit the floor. But in Hungary, everybody wants to be a hero. So he was imprisoned, and uh, 
some way during that imprisonment, he was taken to a court somewhere for a hearing. And uh, there was only one guard there in the room where he was being held. And he, he punched the guard on the jaw, knocked him out, and, and made his escape. So then there was a manhunt for him. And eventually, of course, he was tracked down and brought back to justice. And then he was in fetters with uh, you know, handcuffs and leg fetters. And that's the exercise he got round the, round the exercise yard, was walking with these fetters. And on each corner of the yard, uh, guards with machine guns. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> an unusual man. Now, the other uh, different aspect this, this year uh, was, um, <clears throat> as I say, some people coming to use the center a bit more than perhaps before. And the theme, uh, unfortunately, was one of relationship breakdown. So the foundation that runs the center uh, is run by three directors. One of those directors is sort of happily partnered and has a, a young baby son. So he's, they look like they're in clover. But the other two directors, both of them appear to have relationships that are crumbling. So in particular, one of them actually involved in a divorce. So in this particular instance, it turned out I, I had a ringside seat on this divorce because the, the wife uh, wanted to come and sleep in the center. She didn't want to sleep at home. And sometimes she would bring her teenage children to the center. And the husband would occasionally drive over to have a chat or to talk about things to get some reflections. So I was really right there with them in, the, in this process of divorce and hearing about all their emotions and anxieties. So anyway, the divorce went through and the settlement got paid. And there was something very sad about all of this. And in particular, I think the impact on the teenage children. But there we are, that's life. Things, things change. And this marriage had been going on for 21 years. And then there was also the one or two other relationships in deep trouble. So I was you know, hearing. Now, of course, as a monk, you're not supposed to get into anything like uh, being a marriage counselor or anything like that. But what you can try to do is listen and then to try and offer some Dhamma reflections around whatever anyone is saying. Try to encourage people. That's all you can do. So this time around, uh, I didn't get so many trips out. Sometimes they've arranged trips for me to go here and there and see things. But one thing I did get to do was to go to a, a Tibetan center. So there is a Tibetan center near a little town called Tar. And... Uh, it's all designed in the Tibetan manner with some beautiful murals and eyes and things like that. And it was a special occasion. There was something going on. Two, two uh, outside lamas had come to visit and were, were helping the resident uh, head lama to, to perform a ceremony. So it was all rather interesting and very different to the way we do things. And um, I was very glad to be there. And after the uh, ceremonials and so on, um, Eventually, we were having a meal, and the, 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 the abbot, or the head lama of the, of the center, came and joined us. So his name is Lama Chirpal. 
So I was able to hear a little about, about his life, and I just thought I'd share this with you because it's quite interesting from my point of view to hear about what happened uh, to people under communism and how they uh, coped with the difficulties they had to face. Now, Lama Chirpal, he was a Hungarian, young Hungarian man of about 19, and presumably it was okay for Hungarians to go down into Yugoslavia for a holiday, another communist country. But what he decided to do was to, to get out. Uh, he was, I say, only 19, and he happened to meet a couple of Westerners in Yugoslavia, and he persuaded them, or, or I think he bought something for them, and then talked to them, and, and then persuaded them to take a bag of clothes and a towel and things, and I think they were going rowing or something, and they rowed across from the Yugoslav shore to the Italian shore, and they deposited these things for him on the beach. And then that night, he said it was a beautiful moonlit night with iridescence in the water. He swam from the beach in Yugoslavia for two hours and landed on the beach in Italy. And then he found his, his belongings. Then he, I presume he made his way to a police station and then he was put in a refugee camp. This was in sort of late 60s, so after the events in Czechoslovakia, uh, Western Europe was very open to helping people. And then he was eventually uh, allowed to go and live in, in Stockholm in Sweden and that's where he encountered uh, t Tibetan Buddhism. So that was a, a major break or change in his life and and so years later he's back in Hungary he has his own Tibetan center and he's trying to do his very best for the Hungarian people and he said to me he said whatever you do don't give up on the Hungarians he said I have but don't you Yes, so overall I'd say that the stay was, was uh, reasonably successful, but it was more difficult than uh, in previous years because of some of the things I've mentioned. And um, listening to, to so many troubles and seeing families break up is, is, not, uh, is not very cheerful. But, you know, if, if a centre can help people and provide some kind of refuge, then I think it's, it's, it's pro providing some kind of of service to the people who support it. Now the most shocking and the saddest event for me this year or in the last few months was the uh, death of my stepsister whose name was Carol Farr. Uh, she died, well first of all I should say that before going to Hungary I went down to visit family. This was 30th of June and I was visiting my sister, and her children were her, her young. Her children were there, and the grandchildren. And uh, and they mentioned in the course of the afternoon that uh, Carol was in hospital, and it was something serious. So anyway, some thought came up, some some really quite strong voice which said, "Either you go now, or not at all." So anyway, uh, I took a bus into. Uh, the hospital, which is called St. Helier in South London, and I, I saw the, my stepsister. And uh, 
there was another woman there who was visiting her and my Carol seemed quite chirpy. She seemed pretty, you know, not depressed anyway. Nothing had been uh, arrived at in the way of a, a diagnosis. All the tests had been done, but nothing had been arrived at in the way of di diagnosis. So she was acting like, well, it's a bit inconvenient being here, and I'm hoping to get out. And then we went out, three of us, we went out into the grounds of the hospital. We sat in the garden. We had, you know, very sort of banal or everyday kind of conversation. And then we walked back into the hospital. And as we walked uh, on the ground floor, what, uh, we passed these various shops, you know. On, on the ground floor, there was a W.H. Smith and a supermarket and something else. This is apparently what they do in hospitals now. So she was talking about which was the best shop and all this, you know. And then we went back up to her, her ward, uh, and then you know I said goodbye and left. Um, but what what was evident to me was looking back is that she didn't seem to have a clue about the severity of her condition, or that she basically she had only two and a half months left to live. So. Um, what happened after that was she managed to uh, get out of the hospital because she was able to, she was permitted to go out of the hospital. They hadn't arrived at a diagnosis. I know what was on her mind. She wanted to go on her annual holiday to Switzerland. And uh, this is important for her. She goes with a friend every year and they go walking. So anyway, she managed to do that. She, she got to Switzerland and uh, she got as far as the hotel room and she got no further because suddenly she fell very ill again and then she was admitted to a Swiss hospital. And of course the Swiss hospital had no idea what was going on so they requested a diagnosis from St. Helier and then I presume she was on a kind of very... Uh, uh, spacious uh, insurance scheme. Anyway, she got flown back uh, to Britain in a Learjet with a doctor and a nurse attending. They landed at a small airport called Biggin Hill and then she was taken from there back to St. Helier. And uh, uh, not so long after that, she went from St. Helier to St. George's. This is another hospital in South London where they specialize in cancer. And uh, so she died there on the 14th of September. And the cause of death was lymphoma. That was the initial diagnosis. But also they discovered a tumor in her stomach. So that's what she died from. And it did come as a bit of a shock to all of us. I'll just say a little bit about her life. Um, it wasn't a very easy life. Uh, she lost her mother when she was about 13, or somebody said 13, someone else said 15. Anyway, in her teens, her mother died. And so the two girls, there was another sister and her, lived with the father, uh, the man who eventually married my mother. And uh, he could be quite irritable. And also he seemed to favor the younger sister. That was her... I think, her take on things. So she had this kind of slight feeling of emotional deprivation. 
So in her teens, she started behaving in ways to attract attention, to attract people in slightly inappropriate ways. Um, and then the relationships she had with the opposite sex uh, tended to be a bit unfortunate. She seemed to be attracted to men who were very brutal and um, or you know quite tough looking guys and then you know, the resulting you know things would be that she would be beaten up or something or it never worked out um, so however she did have a successful career she was a deputy head of a junior school and she uh, you know, she did very well in that. She, she earned quite a lot of money. She had her own house. She had a good circle of friends. And I think probably the most, uh, the best part of her life was her retirement, see. Uh, this was when she most enjoyed herself. She had an allotment which she would work in and she had this circle of friends and she had a social life. Unfortunately, the retirement was cut short. And what, I, what perhaps I'm most left with is the feeling that she was simply not ready and totally unaware of what was happening to, or what was about to happen to her. I'm sure that as it became obvious that she was about to die, uh, it would have been a terrible shock to her that she had no preparation whatsoever in regard to that coming event. Um, the things that Carol knew about were, were she, she followed her father. Her father had been very much into sport, football and cricket. So Carol knew all about football and cricket results, which I didn't. But she had very little interest in spiritual matters. So one of the things that she said to me before I left on that afternoon was, I still have no idea what the monk's life is all about. That's what she said to me. I have no idea what the monk's life is all about. And of course, I've been here or in Amravati for quite a few years, so she could have visited, but she never did. So we have this uh, finite period of time. Um, every one of us is mortal. And you know how we face up to this, there are different kinds of approaches, aren't there? There's the approach that says, um, well, it's good to prepare, to contemplate, to, to be alive to what's going to happen. To be prepared for the journey, if you like. That's one approach, if you like, the religious approach. But I think so many people um, in our society don't want to think in that way. They don't want to look at it. So if you were to raise the question of death in uh, a dinner party or in some social occasion, uh, people would say, oh, don't be so, you know, please, will you? Just shut up. Don't be so morbid. And uh, are you trying to ruin the party and so on and so on? This is the society that we live in. So <clears throat> there is the other end of the spectrum, which is life is for enjoying. 
let's make life let's make the best of life let's get as much pleasure as we can because you know and it's going to end or the 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 phrase is eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die so this as a position uh, is not you know you can defend it we do have to die so why not uh, draw as much pleasure out of life right now as you can and I think this is you know what most people try to do certainly when we're young but um, if we call that the hedonist approach what is the problem with it and the problem is this that death is all around us there is death as well as birth and if you just think about the last few months I think it was only maybe a couple of months ago um, 34 bodies were found in a refrigerated lorry in Essex these were people who uh, had come to the UK or thought had paid a new, enormous sums of money to people smugglers to bring them to the UK for a better life or at least to be able to earn money to send home uh, and then they were asphyxiated in this lorry after arrival uh, in the UK just just happened or if we think about the last week uh, there's an island off the north coast of New Zealand called White Island which has a, an active volcano or it was a dormant volcano until this week and then lots of tourists were going there to, to view the volcano obviously a beautiful site and tours of people going there and then suddenly this week as they were looking over the edge of the volcano looking at admiring all the sites suddenly the volcano erupted in their faces and uh, many people were injured and it's likely that 14 people died uh, in that eruption so the point is that uh, we just don't know do we uh, what's around the corner we don't know uh, when death will come or in, in Buddhist terms it's personified as Yama king of death Yama king of death and when he comes there's no, bar there's no bargaining with Yama king of death well there was a, an Eliot T.S. Eliot poem and a line from that poem which said something like this humankind cannot bear too much reality so I mean the, 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 the usual approach is to, to look for pleasure when we're in pain to, to hope for the next pleasurable uh, occurrence or you know to, to hunt out as many pleasurable experiences as we can this is quite normal um, so you can talk about um, different kinds of intoxication uh, we have uh, I'm not talking about drink and drugs you know that's those are sort of very obvious intoxicants but we can be intoxicated with many different things we can be intoxicated with food and drink and sex we can be intoxicated with money we can be intoxicated with power 
and success. We can become intoxicated on ideas. We can be intoxicated through being part of a group. They feel that belong to a group and our group is right and the other group is wrong and so on. It's all about belonging, yes, but also excitement and identification and uh, gratification. So what we're looking for is the prospect of gratification. This is what's, what keeps us going so much of the time. Uh, what is the next sense hit? Where is the, the next bit of pleasure coming from? And particularly this is important to us when we're, you know, we're going through a bad period or we, we're suffering pain. We're looking for something that will relieve that, the, the ray of sunshine that will come through uh, that particular situation. Um, so, <clears throat> as I understand it, anyway, the Buddhist teaching is about two things. It's about waking up to the reality, and it's about taking a step towards freedom. So the, the problem with following the hedonist path is, uh, is that you get, or at least as, as the Buddha described it, pleasure, seeking pleasure is a trap. So in particular, the particular terms that it's described in is the paticca samuppada or the dependent origination. And <clears throat> the point is that dependent origination is a kind of process that's going on all the time, all the time, and it's keeping us bound to this cycle of birth and death. Cycle of birth and death is what guarantees suffering. So what the Buddha is pointing to is, you know, looking more closely at things. Now, the, 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 the problem, if you like, in the West is that we have certain things in the psyche uh, that get in the way of perhaps hearing what the Buddha is saying. So, for, for example, when I became Anagarika first time, because I did it twice, I remember about the time that I ordained I remember lamenting to a couple of monks about all the things I wouldn't be able to do once I was in a robe, you know, once I was bound by the precepts and by the training. So I remember Ajahn Suchito and this other monk saying to me, they said uh, back to me, well, you may not be able to do those things, but you can still chant, you can still chant the Dhamma Jakabhavatana Sutta. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what they mean. But looking back, I can see they were right. <laughs> uh, having chanted the Dhamma Jakabhavatana Sutta, there's a lot in it. And you can get a lot of pleasure from something like that. So the Buddha is pointing towards some different kind of pleasure or different kind of uh, at-easeness. If we think about intoxication, this is about excitement and about becoming and about uh, renewed birth. But he's talking about something else, something more cool and more at ease. And this is very hard, I think, often to get across in the Western environment. So I remember uh, being in the monastery in Switzerland, and I was with a, another monk who's disrobed. His name was Ajahn Sangwaro. And uh, two young American 
female students came to stay in the monastery and they had quite a, a good stay, they quite enjoyed it. But I remember them, one of them putting a question to Ajahn Sangro towards the end of the stay and the question was, um, I think that life is about, or a, a, a successful life is about feeling passionate about life. See, feeling passionate. And Ajahn Sangro's response was very skillful. He said, well, I do know some people who are passionate about attaining to Nibbana. So this is another verse from the Dhammapada. Just like a fish drawn from the watery abode and thrown upon the land, just like a fish drawn from its watery abode and thrown upon the land, so does the mind flutter. Or you could say, so does the mind flap about. And there are many similar stories and verses, aren't there? So there's the famous or oft-quoted Zen story about two monks who are arguing. They see a flag flapping in the wind. One monk says to the other, which is moving, the flag or the wind? One says the, the flag is moving, the other says the wind is moving. And then there happens to come by the sixth patriarch and he says, no, it's neither the wind nor the flag. It is the mind which is moving. And Ajahn Chah also often refers to the mind. It's like a leaf fluttering in the wind. So what is it that makes the mind flutter? It's sense impressions that make the mind flutter. And when we have these, this contact with sense impressions, then we have feeling or Vedana. So these are 12 links of dependent origination. I don't plan to go into them, but there are, there's a crucial sort of section of these 12 links. And in Pali, it is Vedana Pajaya Tanha, which means feeling conditions craving. And then tanha pajya upadanang, craving conditions, clinging or grasping. So when a pleasant feeling arises in the mind, that's when craving arises. When craving arises, that's when clinging arises, grasping onto something. So they have uh, some similes for these aspects of the chain of dependent origination. So the simile for craving is craving is like a thief who is extending his arm towards an object that he wants to possess. That's craving. And clinging is like taking hold of that object. So um, clinging is the intensification of craving. And if we do, do uh, grasp at the object, uh, then it's leading us on to becoming and birth and all the things that follow from that. So <clears throat> every time that we, we follow through with this process, some kind of birth is taking place. And with birth, you get all the other things that arise with birth. So this is, in the Buddha's teaching, this is the key point 
of reference that you can look at Vedana, pleasurable feeling or, or un, unpleasant feeling, and you don't have to go through into tanha, craving. That's the point where the, the chain can be let go of. So feeling can arise and one can just watch it in the mind. So what is it that allows you to do that? So in the Buddhist teaching, it's two things, sati and sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. If we can cultivate mindfulness and clear comprehension, then we will see the Vedana arising, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, we'll know what's going on rather than just blindly following it. So we're shining a light into an area of darkness. And the point is, if you bring mindfulness and clear comprehension into that situation, there is a chance for wisdom to arise. And wisdom sees that uh, the Vedana, the pleasurable or, or unpleasant feeling, is, is uh, subject to the three characteristics. It's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it's not self. So we get into the, what the Buddha is pointing to is not the objects of sense, but the how the mind works. <clears throat> He's asking us to awaken to how the mind works. So for a specific example, supposing uh, you know, there's something that you want to drink or that you want to eat that you don't really need but you want to satisfy your taste buds, you want to thrill the taste, feel the taste. If you follow that from the, the, the Vedana to the, to the craving, to the, the clinging, the grasping, then of course, if you follow that, you're, you're strengthening that process. You're adding, if you like, power to that particular muscle. But if you, ca if you can stop at the Vedana, if you don't follow through to the craving and then the clinging, then you're beginning to, to work against that. You're introducing the possibility of not following through on that cycle. So this is what the Buddha is pointing us towards, that possibility of freedom from uh, following through and, and getting some kind of rebirth through the craving and the clinging. Now, of course, uh, not everybody is... Um, going to use the teachings to try to attain to ultimate liberation. The Buddhist teachings are far broader than that. Uh, they are for everybody. They're for everybody in the human condition. And you know, whether you're following a mundane path or a super mundane path, they, they are of use and can be put to use. Um, so it's finding out what is helpful to you. Each person is different. But this is the suggestion that we start to wake up to the reality of what's going on and that we take a step towards freedom. So this is the, the question mark over the hedonist approach, is that although that looks like the natural thing to do, if you liked, it's like perhaps uh, opening the fruit and sucking it to the, you know, sucking everything you can out of the fruit. And yet, if we do follow that path, 
We are strengthening that muscle which keeps us bound to the wheel of birth and death. So if we're looking for liberation and freedom, then we have to start questioning that particular drive. So I'll leave you with one more little quote, and it's something like this. It's, Whatever harm a foe may do to a foe, or a hater to a hater, uh, an ill-directed mind can do one far greater harm. And I just went mention one other thing, which is we, tonight we, we chanted for somebody called Christopher Tarrant. So this is the other thing that's impacted on me in the last, last uh, few weeks. Uh, he was an old friend at the university I attended. And in fact, there was sort of a, a gang of five of us, uh, quite close, and uh, spent quite a lot of time together. And Chris, uh, just like Carol, he, got a, he had a successful career. He was working in the civil service. He was working for something called the Crown Prosecution Service. He got married and he had two children. And I'm sure he was looking forward to his retirement. Um, but unfortunately, what happened uh, on the 6th of November was that he was, I think he'd been to a theater performance with an old friend of his, and he was in the Elephant and Castle underground station when he suddenly had this heart attack. So he must have collapsed, I suppose, on the floor of the station. But anyway, somebody was there who, who knew about CPR, and they administered him CPR for eight minutes before an ambulance arrived. And then he was taken to St. Thomas's Hospital, where he still is. So I, when I heard this, and I only heard this yesterday, of course, I phoned up his wife. Uh, and this is the sad bit, that uh, although he's alive, he cannot recover because of something called cerebral hypoxia. So the oxygen to the brain was affected and they, they have something called EEG which measures the, the brain waves or something and this tells them that uh, he cannot recover. And uh, so I presume he's on a, a machine and at some point or other the wife and the children have to agree that it's switched off, I don't know. But anyway, I'm in touch with them and uh, hoping to hear from them. But it's just one more example of how whatever is going to happen is completely unexpected and quite contrary to what one would hope. But we have to be open to everything that comes. So this uh, jolly thought, I leave you and uh, offer these thoughts for your consideration. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.